You are listening to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. Welcome to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Hampton. My Unusually Well-Informed guest today is Dennis Geelan. Dennis is founder of Zero In, a, a customer experience and innovation consulting company. Today, Dennis and I will be discussing his book titled The Zero In Formula. Dennis, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Tim. It's my pleasure. So, Dennis, what inspired you to write the book The Zero In Formula? Uh, short answer, uh, COVID. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Long answer was COVID provided me with all kinds of extra time on my hands and a large decline in my workshops and consulting engagements that all got put on hold or, or postponed. So it was, boy, I, I was really starting to make some um, progress, some headway with the uh, zero wind, starting to really build up my clientele. And then, you know, much like every other business, now what do you do? Who right. saw this pandemic coming? So it was, uh, well, um, another way to get my message out there uh, is through a book. And, you know, never looks bad to have a book behind your name too, right? So No, I agree. And I think it's I think it's a, a, a inspiring example because even though your, your, your role is to advise entrepreneurs, you yourself are an entrepreneur and you find yourself really in the same situation that they are. Yes. So COVID has Im- impacted all businesses, some tragically and some at, at, the, at the sort of the margins. But what advice do you have to give companies to weather this or even thrive? Uh, well, to me, that's kind of what um, the, the theme of the book is, is actually all about, is disruptors are always going to come along, mm-hmm. whether that's a, a new competitor, whether that's um, you know, shifts in the market, whether that's new habits or trends, or whether it's a pandemic. So be ready to build your business with a long-term foundation in mind. And for me, that's two pillars. It's being as customer-centric as possible and being as innovative as possible. So invest in putting those uh, principles and practices in place. Don't wait for a pandemic. Don't wait for a competitor. Um, that's what you should build your your foundation of your business on. So that's great advice. And it, the problem is that people pretend to take it to heart, <laughs> right? It often becomes yes. a buzzword. And how do you avoid that? Like, how do you work with companies to avoid them speaking about customer centricity and innovation, but actually getting on the job of doing it? Yeah, probably two of the biggest buzzwords out there right now, right? Customer experience or customer centricity and innovation. And if you talk to five different people, you probably get five different definitions of, of what those things are. Um, and usually it's some sort of wishy-washy thing where, oh yeah, check mark, we do that. Um, right. And again, that's what I try and cut through in the book is, no, no, this is how you actually implement it. This is how you actually show that you mean it. Um, and really it's in how you organize your, your company what, what is your org structure and what are your roles and responsibilities and what are those metrics and, and KPIs that you're truly measuring your success on? Make them around understanding your customers and make them around making sure that you are inventive and innovative. Measure those things first and foremost as the priority of your company 
and then implement the tools and strategies you need to to get better at those things. Now you're proving that you are a customer-centric and innovative company. If those aren't important to you, if you aren't measuring those and investing in those tools and strategies, uh, you're just trying to get those check marks to say, oh yeah, yeah, that's that's us, we're innovative. So one of the challenges I, I, I imagine, and, and I hear people say is that being customer-centric and innovative means you're constantly reinventing and you can sort of lose your way along the way. And, and in the book, you really emphasize the importance of mission, understanding the purpose of the organization that you're creating or that you're working yeah. in. How do you help companies navigate to the, the definition of what they're on, put on this earth to do? Yeah. That, I, I, and I think that's a huge problem is um, innovation's cool, innovation's fun, um, but boy, you can really get shiny new object syndrome, right? Yeah. And uh, like you say, in, in the book, I go very deep into, you do not want to fall into that innovation for the sake of innovation trap, right? Just to say, A, we're an innovative company or to work on stuff that's fun or cool. It has to be outward focused around providing value for your customers. And it has to align with the purpose of your, your company. If not, are you getting off track? Are you sidetracking yourself or, or, or creating your own um, you know, distractions um, just because innovation is cool and fun? And uh, that's not the reason to be innovative. Um, so you live in... Lindsay, Ontario. I live in Maple, Ontario, which is just north of Toronto. I imagine you've heard of, or maybe even visited the the Failure Museum. I think it's called downtown Toronto. I, I haven't been, but uh, I've heard quite the quite the place to visit. Yeah. Well, you you made me think when when we talk about companies doing shiny objects or whatever. There was a, this is apparently a real thing. Once upon a time, there was there was um, Colgate lasagna <laughs> that they tried to take that name brand. <laughs> And extend it so far into left field that, you know, you clearly, if, if your mission was dental health, there's nothing wrong with lasagna, but it doesn't really go with it. Right. Right. Yeah. So it, it, it you can go too far. How, how do you, how do you help um, a company sort of like, we, we agree it's important, but what, what is a little bit of the process that you follow to get them to mm -hmm. that point where they don't make something so far yeah. out in left field? Yeah. And I guess it's not to say, hey, great ideas that don't fit, you just throw them out. But do you want to include those under your brand and really confuse your, your customers? Maybe having a Colgate version of, of lasagna is not a good idea, but maybe spinning off a different company with a different name. Absolutely. If you really have something and you really believe in it. Um, so th those are the types of questions I, I would go through with, with a company. Does this fit your mission? Does this fit your purpose and, and the brand that people have come to associate with you? If the answer is yes, or with maybe a little massaging, it could. Okay, well, let's let's pilot. Let's try some things out and, and see where this goes. If the answer is no, then you have to decide, are we spinning this off? Do we still think it's a good idea to invest in? And, and maybe it becomes a new company down the road. Uh, or a new arm of the company or, or, or something, or boy, this is just right out of our wheelhouse guys and we shouldn't be touching this, right? So just stopping to have those some, some of those critical questions answered um, with is this part of your mission is, is not, a, not a bad thing to be doing before you jump in with both feet. 
You have developed a, a magic quadrant with innovation and customer centricity as, as its axes. Yeah. And so naturally, depending on the strengths or potentially weaknesses of your company, you may find yourself in one of these four quadrants. How, how can a company use that self-discovery to their advantage? What can they plan based on finding themselves in one quadrant or the other? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I have an assessment tool that kind of goes along with that to help you understand which quadrant do you really think you're in. And it's a self-assessment. Um, because I think that's important. It's very different than a, a, a consultant coming in and saying, I think you guys aren't doing this, this or that. I think you're here. That has a very different message than assess your own company and answer these questions honestly uh, about your own business and your company and what you're doing. And now when you find, well, here's what I scored and here's what quadrant it puts me in, that's a very different message than Dennis tells me I'm in this quadrant versus boy, I just told myself I'm in this quadrant. Um, so I always start with the assessment um, for, for the companies to do that self-assessment. I think it's more powerful. And then there's just this realization that, yeah, uh, and maybe five or six different people in the company and the leadership team have done this and they put their scores together and they agree. We're not in that top left-hand uh, quadrant, which my whole thing is about that's where you need to be. That's the healthy intersection of being customer centric and innovative. And that should be the foundation of your company if you really want long-term success. And I imagine one of the advantages of having companies or, or the, the, the people in the companies do the self-assessment is they're not comparing to some sort of consultant ideal. They, they're comparing to their own expectations or maybe to their own competition. Yeah. But, you know, if you're, if you're running, uh, I don't know, like a, a furniture moving company, you may, you may be scored on a different scale than if you're, than you're, if you're in a coffee shop sure. or something. Yes. Yep. The, uh, the ideas around innovation or, or, or customer centricity are going to vary depending on your industry and, and who your customers are and, and so on. So. Um, so you, in the book, you remind us of a story about um, Henry Ford, who said you can have, uh, if he'd asked them what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Of course, he was in the business of making cars available to the masses yeah. And so he, he was sort of criticizing the notion of slavish devotion to what customers say, but that there's a subtle point to be made there, right? You're not necessarily asking your customers for the solution. You're asking them for the problem. How do you make sure that we stay in love with the problem long enough to find the right solution? Yeah, that's a, it's a, um, a quote I think that has been used many times. And I think if you look it up, there's even debate over whether Ford actually even said that, yeah. but it's a great it's quote. A good story. So, so you got to use it. Yeah. yeah. But, but, but I think the point there is, it, there is, like you say, a, um, a, a distinct difference between asking somebody, hey, um, what do you want or what would make this better? They're going to go into solution mode. Um, and most people just aren't good at coming up with solutions on the spot. Mm -hmm. Even if they think they are, even if they think they know what they want, they're looking at it from their own bias, their own assumptions, their own experiences. So if you take the, the Henry Ford example, 
people didn't know that there was such thing as a combustible engine and the potential for an automobile. So I need a faster horse. I'm putting that in the context of what I know is today I ride on horses or ride behind a horse. I need my horse to go faster. When really the problem is I have to get from A to B faster than I do today. And boy, it'd be nice if there was a little more protection um, when, you know, and, uh, you know, less chance of, of uh, having to stop because my horse has to, you know, eat or, or, or rest or, or whatever. Uh, that's the information you really want to dig down to. And um, that takes a very special approach and techniques to be able to collect that information, interpret that information, and then do something with that information to come up with a solution. Right. Really and, and, different than, than, Hey, what do you want? And it's a, it's a reminder that um, even though we co-create with our users, we can still be experts, right? We still know what's, what's, what's possible. Cause another, yeah. another um, person who, 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 uh, is quoted often. I forget what the particular quote is. You did you did mention it in the book, but uh, uh, Steve Jobs talking about, you know, that rarely does the user know what they what they need, but they do know what they want. So you can ask what they want, and then you can come up with what they need. So if yeah. they'd asked me when I had a BlackBerry, I might have said a bigger backspace key, right? right? I would may not have realized the flexibility that would come with a with a full screen. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a relief that we don't have to give up everything in the co-creation process that you still yeah. bring value Yeah, exactly. As, as, the, as the company principle. And I think jobs is probably a great example too, of there's, there, there are very different ways of going about this. There's the outside in approach. Let's really examine customers and their habits and their trends and let's ask information and let's get market research and let's really use that information to inspire us to now create something that um, meets their needs jobs and 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 uh, i guess james dyson is another great example mm. of uh i have an idea and people don't even know they need this yet right but i know they do and I'm going to create this thing that is going to have thousands of songs in your pocket and people are going to love it. Or I'm going to create this thing that's like a computer in your hand where you can call people and go on the internet. And nobody's asking me for that because they don't even know it's even possible. Right. But I know it's possible and I know they want it. Um, so it's that outside in versus inside out. But both of them have to start with a very good understanding of people do actually want or need this, mm -hmm. whether they're expressing it or not. Can you um, connect these ideas to Clayton Christensen, who talks about jobs to be done? There, there's something in there about figuring out what people are trying to get accomplished. Yeah. Yeah, his, his, his book, uh, Competing Against Luck, was uh, uh, one of my favorites. Um, real eye-opener for me that and he and he talks about it so much and i think his milkshake story has probably been played and told so many different times but it's really uh instead of asking people hey what would make our mcdonald's milkshake better 
which is kind of that whole thing. If I asked my customers what they wanted, they'd say a faster horse. And that, that was the approach his consulting company took when they were asked by McDonald's to help make their milkshakes better. Well, let's just ask people, let's stand outside McDonald's and ask them, hey, what would make that better? Well, does it need to be tastier? Does it need to be thicker? Does it need to be creamier? Uh, and they were getting nowhere. And it wasn't until the realization that it was, why are you even buying a McDonald's milkshake when they started asking that question? Mm. And what led you to deciding <laughs> I want a milkshake. And then why did you decide you wanted one from McDonald's? And why did you decide that you needed it during this time of day? When they took that very different approach of start asking, what was the job you were actually hiring this milkshake to do for you? Uh, that's when the light bulbs started going off. And now you have this whole jobs to be done uh, theory and process and practice and really getting into the brain of um, what was the thought process going on uh, with our customers that led them to this purchase? And then when we understand that information, how does that change our marketing? How does that change the way we view our customers and our products? And, and um, yeah, a lot of light bulbs went off for me when I read that book. Um, you say in your book that indifference is worse than even anger or disappointment that, that at least you can address that with an improvement of product, but, but indifference yeah. is the worst. Can you expand on that? How do you avoid people being indifferent to your product or service? Yeah. And to me, that's, that's the biggest challenge every business should be focusing on is, is solving indifference, but both internally and externally, mm. you don't want indifferent customers, but you also don't want indifferent employees. Um, but to answer your question, if, if people have a strong negative opinion about your company or your products or service, at least you're top of mind, at least you're doing something <laughs> yep. and I'm not advocating, Hey, no, don't and try start there. Yeah. yeah. Don't, don't try and create a product or a company that people hate, but you've at least touched on an emotion. Mm -hmm. You're doing something when they're indifferent towards you, you're not top of mind at all. You just blend in. There's no compelling reason for them to think about you. There's no compelling reason for them to choose you versus your competitors. So now what? Now you have to compete on price. And that now, now you're in a real downward spiral. If the only customers you're attracting are the ones that want the cheapest, yeah. well, are those really the customers you want? And if that's the new brand you've created for yourself is the cheapest well you're probably also seen as the least valuable as well and you've created this whole problem for yourself so indifference is is a huge killer at least if you have a strong negative emotion out there you can identify why that is and probably uh, fix it quicker yeah when people are indifferent it's like well where do we start what, if, what are we doing wrong yeah um, that's a real problem yeah i can imagine that that you know, for you to hate a product, it has to be because you were this close to loving it and it let you down somehow. And right. so you just fix that thing and you're in business, but if, yeah. if you're right. If you're they're just looking and going, meh, <laughs> where do you start? Yeah. It's terrible. Yeah. Um, so speaking of, of, you know, the kind of passion that we want to have, you emphasize the value of customer experience and a spectrum of increased value all the way from simply providing a commodity 
all the way up to a transformational experience. Now, I don't know if transformational experience is a, is a common term or if that was unique to your work, but I, I haven't heard that used before. How, how does one go all the way from selling just a commodity all the way to a transformational experience? Yeah, so this comes really from um, Pine and Gilmore's book, The Experience Economy, which came up maybe, maybe 20 years ago. So this is their um, explanation of, you know, the, the economy has really evolved uh, over time and um, what people see value in. So you go back hundreds of years um, before the Industrial Revolution, when things were mass produced, uh, commodities were what was bought and sold. And then I needed to buy that wood so I could build myself a desk. Um, but then, you know, the Industrial Revolution comes along and things are being mass produced. Uh, now you just go and you buy the desk. Right. And people see value in a finished desk that looks nice. And there's probably more value on buying a finished product than there is on buying the raw goods. The, the price and the, and the value that people associate with the product is higher than the commodity. And then it went to services around products. Well, now we start seeing a lot of value in that. There's a, there's a big service economy out there, right? Mechanics or, or restaurants or hotels, they're, they're servicing you. Um, and then it evolved into, well, boy, if we can make that an experience that really resonates with people on an emotional level, uh, like going on a vacation or going zip lining or going to the spa where we're really creating an experience that resonates with you, people see an even higher value in that and will pay, you know, pay more for an exceptional experience. And then as they explain in their book, the next level is, boy, if that experience can transform you somehow. So now you start thinking of a life coach, maybe, um, some sort of motivational Tony Robbins. Uh, he's a transform. He provides transformational experiences. Uh, maybe a consultant that comes in and really helps you transform your, your company. Uh, people put a high price tag on that. That's a transformational experience that you're providing. So the, the, um, I mean, there are plenty of businesses <clears throat> that make a, a living selling a commodity, but as you point out that you, you often wind up either in a game of trying to gobble up your competition until you're practically a monopoly or just watching your margins erode. So, and that's true every step of the way. And, and so you see companies like GM and Ford, not so much Chrysler for some reason, but GM and Ford are both really keen on getting into the mobility as a service market. Mm -hmm. So you can see them going through this transition that you're recommending. It, 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 you don't have to necessarily be trapped at any point on that spectrum you can have ambitions to wrap your product, for example, in a, in a yep. uh, service. Yep. Yep. Exactly. If we, if we've got a product, how do we wrap a service around it? And then when we've got that service, how do we make it an exceptional experience to have that service? And can that service or experience be transformational? Maybe, maybe not, but you know, there, there's, there's always another step you can probably go and, and increase the value of what you're doing. So your book helps businesses be both disruptive and sustainable. Um, I'm sure you get business owners who say they can barely be sustainable, let alone uh, find, set aside the resources to be disruptive. How do you help them through that challenge? Yeah, and, and really, I think there's a few different schools of thought or a few different camps when it comes to applying 
principles of customer centricity and, and innovation, right? There, there's what I would call the dinosaurs. I, I don't even think we need to do that. This is the way we do it. We're fine. Uh, and maybe it is fine right now. Is it going to be fine in five years? Are you going to be blockbuster when Netflix comes along? Like, if you're not building that culture of being customer-centric and innovative, are you going to be able to be proactive, let alone reactive, when something comes along? So those are the dinosaurs. They don't even think they, they need to do it. Then you have the busy bees. And this is kind of what you're touching on. We don't have the time. But I think it's, it's a case of tunnel vision. And we see it in our own lives all the time. You get caught up in the day-to-day -day and the to-do lists and the, I think this is what's most important, so I'm going to do it now. And, and it feels good to get things off your to-do list and feel productive. But sometimes you can take a step back at the end of the day and say, was that really a, a great day? Did I enjoy myself? Was it challenging or was it rewarding? Or did I just get a bunch of stuff done? Mm -hmm. And the same thing can happen in our business. It's I just got to service these customers today and then that's a successful day. But if you take a step back, is the company heading in the right direction? Are, are there things that we're missing because we just got this tunnel vision of getting through today? Um, so if you carve out intentionally time and maybe some resources to implement some more customer-centric and, and innovative practices, um, you can start moving forward. And then you've got another camp that I would call the lost. They understand you do need to do it. Yes, customer centricity and, and innovation is important. The, they do carve out the time. We, we know we need to do this. It has to be done. We're going to make time for it, but they don't know how. What, what do we do? How, how do we become more customer centric? What does that look like? Or how do we become a more innovative culture? What does that look like? Uh, and those are typically the ones that I get to work with. They want to do it. They just need some guidance, right? Yeah. So that's kind of my spectrum of companies that do and don't and, and why. So maybe it's not fair of me to ask this because uh, I'm sure none of your clients are dinosaurs, but of the companies out there that could benefit from your services, what, what, how do you say that, how would you say they're distributed? Would, is it roughly a third each? No, or I would say, I would say maybe 20 years ago, there was a lot more dinosaurs. Um, but the rate of change yeah. with the internet and all the technology and all the new trends, all the new disruptors that have come along in so many different industries, I, I think you're hard pressed to find a lot of dinosaurs now. I, I, I would hope that's you know below 10%. Yeah. Maybe there's some, some companies that have been around for a long time and they have had no need to change and they might still be hanging on to that. But uh, I, I would say probably, you know, 10 or less percent would be dinosaurs. Maybe uh, the rest is kind of split half and half between we're too busy and, hey, we want to, but we, we don't quite know how. Yeah, I think I think you're right about that. And I also think um, you, you chose, and I know it was just to illustrate the point, but you chose uh, 20 years ago. You know, 20 years ago is when we had this explosion of information available to us through the internet. And so you just can't hide from what's going on. You, you, you could be running any business and all you have to do is go to YouTube or a blog and you can find people with ideas on how to improve it. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a much more dynamic world. So yeah. I think you're right. And, 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 and who would have thought all these different industries would be changed so much. If you go back 20 years and I said to you, Hey, you know, instead of renting from a hotel, 
you could just go on this website <laughs> and rent somebody's bedroom in their basement. Yeah. And people will be doing that and they're going to love it. You would have thought I was crazy. Yeah. It does. Even though I've done it many times, it still sounds like madness to me. So yeah. yeah, yeah. Trying to come up with that idea 20 years ago. Um, so let, let's talk a little bit about how we can inject innovation into our companies. One, one approach is to sort of create an innovation lab or a department of innovation or whatever. And the other is to try to do it. So it's sort of, do we concentrate? Do we go narrow and deep or do we go shallow and wide? Do we try to get mm -hmm. the whole company to innovate? I imagine there's reasons to do one or the other. It depends on the circumstance. How do you, how do you help companies decide which way yeah. to go? There's, there's, there's definitely pros and cons to, to each approach. And, and like you say, it, it, the, the favorite answer I have to almost every question, it depends, depends. right? But it's so true. Like it, yeah. everything's different. If we go back to that um, Colgate lasagna mm -hmm. example from earlier, well, if you're in a situation where you want to start trying some new things that don't really fit within your mission, maybe have a lab off to the side that's trying some things. Uh, and if they find an idea that works, you can spin up a new arm or a new company or, or something um, and you're not disrupting your current brand and you're not getting your current customers or your current employees upset as to why are we being distracted by this other stuff. That's a great reason to have an innovation lab and um, a pro of an innovation lab is it's easier to start up. It's a smaller group of people. They have an innovation mandate. They can start to get good at it quickly because that's what they're doing. And it's separate from the rest of the company, so you're not disrupting the rest of the company. But if you want to really have an innovative company, if you really want to be known for innovation, and regardless of what product or service somebody is attached to within the company, you want this idea of let's find new and better ways of doing things, it's better to have a widespread innovation culture really hard to get there, much harder to implement than an innovation lab. But if you can get there, and that's kind of what you want to build, uh, that's the way to go. Uh, it's going to take time. It's going to take some great leadership um, and some really strong principles and practices to follow and slowly get better at over time. Um, so understand this is a long-term uh, approach. Um, but you see these innovative companies that are out there and what they're doing. And you, you, you see the power of having a culture of innovation. And um, that's kind of what I subscribe to. And that's mostly what I'm working with businesses on is we, we just want to get better as a company at innovating. Okay, so let's start with some principles and practices to slowly get better at. So as you were explaining that, um, I'm, I'm a bit of a car nerd and even more nerdy about how cars are made and how the business is run. So this story may not resonate with you, but let me set the table and, and see how it grabs sure. it. So I don't know if you remember Saturn cars, the plastic cars, you could beat yep. on them with a, with a shopping cart and they wouldn't get scratched. That was a brand new division within General Motors. So you had Chevy and Cadillac and Buick and Pontiac, and then you added Saturn into the mix. Right. And the idea, and Saturn was really that kind of innovation lab. They had completely unique engines, completely unique, unique chassis, the plastic bodies, a whole new distribution network. 
right. uh, no haggle pricing, everything was different, right? And over time, it just got strangled in the crib. They, they, instead of embracing the lessons that were learned there, they basically just said, the next car you have has to be on the same chassis as all the other cars we make. Mm. And it just kind of fell apart. But as you were talking, it occurred to me, because that, that is often cited as an example of, they don't really call it innovation, but really just attempting to compete with Japan, a, a, right. an effort to create something new that failed within an organization. But I'll bet you hundreds of people who worked at Saturn have worked their way up to the, up the ladder at, at General Motors, and they remember the lessons they learned. So it's, it's like Seinfeld says, you can't knock a, a Coke machine over in one go, you have to rock it a bit. So yeah. it makes me think that maybe we shouldn't despair when attempts at innovation don't take right away, that maybe they're, yeah. especially in a company with you know a long longevity of a car company, maybe it's still worth it. Maybe it creates this, this culture that will emerge over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some, some of the best learnings are from things that don't go well. Mm -hmm. If everything goes too easy and, and too well, are you really learning? Right? Um, so I think, I think it is important to, to really pause and reflect um, after each little pilot, after each little thing, whether it goes well or, or doesn't go well, and probably more importantly, if it doesn't, and, and really understand why. Was that a system problem? Was that a strategy problem? Was that a thinking problem? Was that an implementation problem? What if we just tweak this? What if we had it done this differently? And don't throw the baby out with, with the, with the bathwater, right? Like what are the lessons to, to take forward with us here? Yeah. And, and have, if you're going to spend, you know, I think billions, if you're going to spend a large chunk of your company's treasure on an experiment, you really need to know what you want to learn from it. Even if you mm. do fail. Yes. I think that's often lacking. It's just the whole thing's chalked up as a failure. We spent all that money and didn't accomplish anything. Well, that, that's never right. You should learn yeah. something from it for sure. Yeah. And I, I would hope that some of those discussions did happen mm -hmm. within the company. Uh, obviously, we're not privy to all the, all the discussions that went down, but I, I would hope that uh, you know, there was some of that that happened there. So um, I'm sure you're very familiar with design thinking. So I'm not telling you what it's like, but just to set the table. Um, design thinking is described by Stanford D school as having five steps. So there's empathize, define, ideate, prototype, and test. So basically observe your users, try to think through again, this idea of don't define the solution they want, define the problem they want solved. Think through with your expertise, what the possible solutions are, come up with a prototype and, and try it with the people you're trying to serve. The reason I bring all that up is because you describe five principles companies can use to build a culture of innovation. So you're getting really meta here. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know if it was deliberate or just instinctive, but there's a real parallel between how, can, how somebody can come up with a, an innovative product and how you advise people to come up with an innovative culture. Yeah. So if your memory is good enough, list the steps you recommend uh, for a company yeah. to come up with an innovative culture. Oh boy, you're putting me on the spot. Okay, so, well, um, I can read them out. I got. I, I, I think. The, I think the first one was understand your customers. Exactly. So right. that so thing that maps empathy, right? Uh, then um, your next, yeah, empathy, empathy, and then in design thinking, it was define. 
right? Yeah, I'm trying and to your remember framework, what... Your framework says question your assumptions and biases, which is kind right. of, right? You're, you're defining the problem you're trying to address. Yes. And then you go on to say implement diversity and inclusion, which is really what ideation is all about, right? You're mm -hmm. trying to come up with solutions or multiple solutions so you can narrow down to one to try. So I, yeah. I thought that was great. And then be agile and develop prototypes, pilots, and minimum minimum viable products. Yeah, it's amazing to me that you've you've developed a mechanism to build a company that's innovative. Mm -hmm. That really kind of uh, you can learn a lot from the process of coming up with um, an innovative product. So walk yeah. walk me through how companies can use this framework. Yeah, and, and like you said, it's completely inspired by the five steps of design thinking, but at a company level now, right? If you really want to create this culture, if you really want to create this mindset, have these principles in place. And um, the way that, that companies typically do well at that kind of stuff, you know, when you're defining like maybe your company values or your, your core, it's not just writing it down and plastering it on posters around the company, it's how do we now embed this in what we do every day, right? So when, you, when we say understand our customers, what does that actually look like? Mm -hmm. Do we actually have people with roles and responsibilities of understanding our customers, um, jobs to be done type interviews, customer journey mapping, you know, um, really diving into who are our customers, uh, have we calculated the lifetime value of our different customers or our customer segments to really understand who we're serving and, and get in the mind of these people? That's what I mean by understand your customers. So make sure you've got, you know, that built into your company. You've got those tools, those roles and responsibilities, those KPIs in place to understand your customers. Question your assumptions and biases is really a, a habit, I think. I don't know how many times I've been in a meeting where somebody in the room eventually pipes up and says, oh, that'll never work. We tried that five years ago. <laughs> yeah. Great. Now is a perfect time to question our assumptions and biases. Why didn't that work five years ago? Kind of what we were just uh, saying before. Was that an implementation problem? Was that a strategy problem? What, what, what was it? What could we have done differently? So really start to encourage people to question those things whenever they either find themselves saying those types of phrases or one of their coworkers, and it's okay to question it because that's what we want to do, right? And the diversity inclusion, I mean, two other big buzzwords, but what we're really talking about in the context here is we want more perspectives at the table. Mm -hmm. When it comes to thinking about solving problems, when it comes to brainstorming, when it comes to trying to feed off each other, if you have a room full of people that are from the same part of the company, have been there around the same length of time, have had a very similar experience, do you really think they're coming up with a diverse bunch of ideas? No. Like you want people from different parts of the company, different seniority, people who just started and people who've been there for 20 years, people with different backgrounds. Um, now you start really getting some diverse thoughts and conversations happening only if those people feel like it's safe to do so. And that's that inclusion part. Inclusion, yeah. Right? Everybody from the janitor to the CEO should feel like it's okay. 
obviously there's got to be good structure and parameters around this to be able to have an idea. And it doesn't mean that idea is automatically going to go into action, but one idea feeds another idea and you want those different perspectives and you want people to feel safe to give those ideas. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's the whole diversity and inclusion part. And then, you know, the, the, the agile part, that's, that's getting good at going small. Hey, if we think we got something, how do we get this out there just to test it quickly? Right. Yeah. And, and having that mindset that it's not just that success is not just making money. It's learning from the effort. Like you can't just yeah. abandon the effort without learning from it. So you, yeah. you raise the, the, well, let me, let me start with this question. I want to go to the go bigger, go home versus uh, trying things small, but let's first talk about um, the balance between the process of planning and experimenting, because, you know, there are plenty of good reasons to plan. And yet, because the world is changing so quickly, you know, people in your situation often find yourself saying, okay, you can only plan around things you really know. So how do you, how do you help people balance between, between planning yeah. and experimentation? Yeah. I think, um, again, it's, it's the old, it depends answer, but uh, it, it's kind of like, um, and, and I have a project management background. My master's in, in project management. I've, I've led project management offices at, at different companies in my past. There is a time and a place for proper, really detailed plans, right? Uh, it depends on what you're doing. It depends mm-hmm. on the project. It depends on the initiative, right? You don't want to take an agile approach to building a house. You want to have a proper plan and we're not doing this until the inspector says this part's done and then we can do that because it's way too risky and expensive to experiment or start being agile. And then there's times where it makes way you know, more sense. Let's just try this out. We could, we could do analysis paralysis and for what? Yeah. This is an unknown. This is something that's new. Let's just spend as little amount of time and money and effort as possible because the first thing we want is a little bit of feedback and reaction. Is this even resonating? Mm-hmm. And under those circumstances, no, go small and get something in front of uh, your customers to see if, you know, what's their feedback. I really like the house building example because, you know, you and I live in Canada, there's codes, there's, pretty standard look and feel to houses. You, you obviously want to do the foundation before you do the framing. You obviously want to do the electrical before you do the drywall. You really want to plan that. That's what experience is for. And you have experience mm-hmm. that's very consistent. But if you're designing a house that's completely different, then you might want to allow for a little back and forth. And, and so you pay, you have to pay more for different, right? You yeah. can't just get there on one swing. You have to be a little bit experimental. Yeah. But you have to know that that's going to be a tougher road. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if this is new and if, and if the homeowner is asking you to design something I've never seen before, well, you're not going to go and build the whole house first and go, how does that look? Is that what you were thinking? <laughs> you're going to draw, right? Some wireframes and some yeah. sketches. And that's your go small uh, version of, of building a house, right? Let's, yeah. let's test out a bunch of ideas with some sketches first before we go spend a bunch of money on concrete and electrical and plumbing. Yeah. 
For sure. I have a friend who had a reno and, and he, he had this mindset and he actually went, this is the thing when you're, when you're paying for your own reno, you get to go on the site. Right. And he, he laid out painter's tape all over the place to say, that's where the cabinets will be. This is where this door will swing. And mm-hmm. he actually discovered, you know, that the, the way the door interacts with the counter, is not going to work here. Yeah. And so they actually had an opportunity to move the wall before it got too expensive. Yeah. So, you, you, you know, having that mindset that you don't just have to go from plans all the way to a finished house, as you point out, there can be iterative steps that if yeah. you're, if you're clever about it, if you're, if you, if you really think about the value of doing something that comes closer, that minimum viable product, you know, that prototype, yeah. uh, you can, you can save a lot of money and a lot of grief down the road. Yeah. And, and usually you'll know that when it's some sort of unknown right? If this is the same kitchen we've put in a hundred times before, sure. we know what it looks like. We know how it fits. We know how the doors swing. If it's a, oh boy, this is a new configuration. <laughs> Maybe we should put some tape on the floor or draw some wireframes or, or try one thing before we put, you, you have to know, you know, what are we dealing with here? Yeah. So it, it, it depends. So so I wanted to bring up the point you made in the book, which, which is, um, you know, people always want to go big or go home that, okay, we've made our decision. We're going to close our eyes and go in that direction now. And we're going to invest everything in it. And, you know, in the movies, sometimes that turns out, but in real life, that can be, that can be a real problem. Do you ever, I'm sure this is a depends, it depends kind of thing again, but let's talk about why, why it depends and how to choose. Are there occasions when a company really has to go big or go home? Well, it makes for a good story when they do it and it works. I can tell you that, right? (laughs) But um, is there a time when they should do it? Um, I mean, you have to know when to take some calculated risks. And, you know, there, there's going to be information that the leadership has leading up to that decision, maybe some data, maybe some case studies, maybe some whatever. It's still an unknown. It's still a risk. I would never advise just going, oh, this sounds good. Let's let's go all in. Um, but if your industry is changing and you have to make a, you know, a pivot, if, um, you know, there's there's a big disruptor out there like COVID and you have to act fast take the information you have, get some different diverse perspectives on it quickly. And yeah, you're going to have to make a a quick decision in those times. We talked at the top about um, how you not only advise entrepreneurs, you are yourself an entrepreneur. And you've actually illustrated this in a couple of ways that I want to get into. Um, First of all, you, you consult right? You advise, but then you also write a book, you know, so you're, you're packaging what you know, what the, the value you can provide in a different way. Um, and I want to get into some, there's a couple of other things coming up that I, I want to talk about that you've done sure. that I think are, are really clever ways of packaging. But the thing is to, to, to get unstuck and think of different ways to provide value with what your core capabilities are, you really need to come up with a lot of ideas. Mm-hmm. And this can be a challenge for one person and, it, and even a group can struggle because they're not sure if, if it's their turn or if they're going to you know, sound ridiculous. Yeah. 
So you have come up with a game. So this is a, another example of you sort of taking your knowledge and your and your in the value you provide and, and coming up with a nif- different way of packaging it. You have a game that helps people get unstuck. So talk to me about the game and the process of putting it together and how does it yeah. work? Yeah. Well, the process of putting it together, that was actually fun and, and a fun story. So when I first started out with Zero In, I was mostly just doing workshops. I, people weren't familiar enough with me yet to bring me in as a consultant. So to get my name out there, I'll host some workshops that people can come and pay and I'll make them fun and I'll make them interactive. People will get to know me. They'll get to see what I'm about. Um, and what I found was, boy, I, I had maybe a handful of ideas for getting people to engage and breaking off into small groups. Um, and I can't keep running those same plays out there every time, right? That's going to get old. And sometimes when I'm explaining a concept, after a while, you can see people like, okay, I think I get it, but their eyes start to gloss over. I needed a way to be more fun and engaging and get this material across. So I was talking about this with, with my friend. We're out for dinner one night, and um, we just got talking, and, and it was like, you know, I think a board game would be really cool. People love to play. They love to compete. We can split into teams. If I can come up with a game that kind of teaches these principles of innovation that I, I, that I was talking about in my workshops, it teaches them that while they're actually doing it in a board game that is kind of fun and entertaining and competitive, boy, that'd be a great idea for a workshop or, or you know, or, or consulting engagement even. So when I got home uh, that night from dinner, I had a pizza box with me um, from my leftovers. I opened it up and I kind of sketched out the game. That was my first MVP. Yeah. Right. Spent nothing on it and drew it out. I started playing with just friends and family and kind of worked in what was working, what wasn't. This doesn't make sense, whatever. Adjusted why am rules. I greasy? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> why, do I, why am I so hungry for pizza when I'm yeah. done playing the game? But, you know, that was that was it. And then I was going through my own process of innovation and iterating um, while creating the innovation game. So I thought that was that was kind of a neat story as well. And then it evolved. And, and as I played it more and more with people, I come up with new versions of the game and new game boards and new rules and eventually got to a point where, hey, this is in a format. I can actually play it now with businesses. And they loved it. So um, it was really trying go. to solve a problem. Yeah. So... Um... I have a couple of, oh, so I, I want to get into this, uh, some other stuff, but I'm going to move a couple of questions up here because you're, you're kind of an innovation polymath, right? So you've, you've, you've got consulting, you've got workshops, you've got a book, you've got a game. You've also got a, a video course mm-hmm. coming up or is it in process now? It, it's out now. Yeah. Yeah. So tell yeah. me about that. Um, so probably another COVID related thing um, mm-hmm. when the, book first came out I still was not able to physically be in front of uh, companies doing workshops playing the game Uh, I could do all kinds of stuff um, online but by this time everybody was pretty much zoomed out I think was the term right like who wants to sit on another two-hour workshop over zoom and you can try your best to make those as interactive and fun as possible but um, what I was starting to see was people were reaching out to me and saying, ah, if I could just, you know, do it in snippets, or if I could just 
maybe maybe um, uh, we we can't afford you to come in and, and be like a consultant with us for the next couple of weeks, but we can afford this. I'm like, okay, this is a new problem. How do I solve that? They want it in snippets. They want it smaller price point, but they still want my information. Um, boy, I could take a lot of the stuff I've done in my book and put it into a video course where I'm diving deeper, where there's templates, where there's takeaway exercises, where they can now start to apply this to their business. So I did. And I, again, I took my innovation approach. I, I did a few videos. I got some uh, test uh, uh, beta testers to kind of give me feedback on what's working with the course, what's not, what would make it better, and iterated until I got to the point where, okay, I'm ready to actually film the full-on course now. And now it's for sale. I was actually just on a call with a, a company in Columbia right before this where eight people in their organization uh, just finished the course and they were kind of going over their feedback with me. So still wanting to still wanting to get customer feedback every step of the way. So Oh, that's fantastic. So how do you host it? Is it, is it, uh, what platform are you using? So I did some research there and looked into different ones. And the one I landed on is um, a platform called Podia, P-O-D-I-A. Okay. Uh, it's connected uh, right into my website though. So you just go to the zero in website, you go to the courses section. And if you choose to purchase, uh, you wouldn't know it, but now you're in Podia um, taking the course. So. So the the URL that you have uh, stays even when they're in the course. That's brilliant. Yep. Right. Yep. Um, so let's let's talk about your experience of writing a book because that can be a daunting uh, task. Many it people is. say they have a book in them, but they never get around to putting it to paper. How did yep. you start? Well, when COVID first hit, and I was kind of feeling sorry for myself. Uh, you know, that lasted a week or two. And then I realized, boy, I've been given a, a real opportunity here. Suddenly I have time. Uh, I was in a pretty good financial position with a lot of the consulting work I had, had done up to that point. So how do I utilize this time? So I reached out to some other consultants. Uh, they, they always say it's nice to, or, or good practice, to talk to somebody who's 10 years ahead of where you are, where you okay. want to be. So I reached out to some different uh, people, one of them being Charles Green. He wrote a book 20 years ago called The Trusted Advisor. And since then, um, created a, a company called The Trusted Advisor Associates and became, you know, quite successful through that. So I was just kind of talking to him and he said, you know, it was really the book, Dennis, that, that launched everything. Once he put out The Trusted Advisor book, now he had something different. He had something behind his name. And, it, it, and you know, just having a book, good or bad, it, uh, uh, gives you some cachet. He's like, he went over with me what I do and how I do it. And he's like, yeah, I could really see that fitting into a book format. And uh, I had several calls with him to pick his brain about the book writing process and the book publishing process and the marketing and promotion process. So he was, he was like a book coach and mentor <laughs> for me. Uh, I probably would not have, have done it if it wasn't for him kind of prompting me and, and guiding me through it. So, so did you, cause I, what little I know about writing books, you can approach a, a publisher and they'll, they'll, they'll say, okay, great. Finish the book. Or you can approach them with a finished book or you can self publish. Walk, walk me through the choices yeah. you made there. Yeah. So same thing. I, I reached out to authors and said, and Charles was one of them, you know, what do you suggest? What was your thought process? What was your experience? 
And the majority of the authors I talked to um, got back to me and said, whether right or wrong, they don't believe the traditional publisher provides the same value as it did 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Back then, you had to have a traditional publisher if you wanted to get your book out there and make anything. Not sure that that's the case anymore. And a lot of these were authors that are with publishers, but they've been with them for 10, 15, 20 sure. years. And they yeah. said, you know, moving forward, uh, you know, if I was to start over, I'd probably go the self-publishing route. But make sure you have a really good editor. Make sure you have a really good uh, graphics design team because people do actually judge a book by its cover mm -hmm. and what it looks like. Um, and the editor is going to make sure it actually reads. Um, oh, there it is. And it looks very good indeed. Yeah. There you go. And the, and the editor is going to make sure it actually reads well and keeps the, um, you know, the reader hooked in. And, and when you're done one chapter, they're going to help you make sure that people want to read the next chapter and there's all that kind of stuff you don't think about. Uh, when you're first writing the book, you're just looking at content. And I remember actually when I, when I sent my, my first version of the manuscript to my editor, once I decided on an editor, um, she took a week or two and, and read it and got back to me with all her edits and said, you know, really good content in here, Dennis. Extremely boring. <laughs> this, is, this reads like a textbook. Mm. Like the only people that are going to enjoy reading this are the people who are so nerdy about this stuff. Sure. Um, but for a more casual reader or somebody who, you know, uh, is not as in depth uh, into this stuff, we got to add some stories. We got to add some hooks. We got to we got to add some other content that are really engage the people in. And uh, she really guided me through how, how to do that. So. That was that was very helpful and something obviously I'm not even thinking of when I'm when I'm just putting my content into a manuscript. Oh, that that's that's great advice. So once you have your completed manuscript and your cover design and everything, are you are you buying boxes full of books and selling them, or are you doing it through a self-publishing model on on yeah. something like Amazon? How how does that work? Yeah. So after all my research, I did decide to go self-publish on, on Amazon. I did create my own individual publishing company, Zero In Publishing, um, but it's, it's, it's self-published. And yeah, it's all through, all through Amazon. They, they do all the distribution. They do all the printing. It just, it just makes it so easy, right? Um, well, and, I, I, I think that's an important lesson for, for people who'd like to write a book because th there's, this is indistinguishable from any other book. I've ever, you know, like the quality of the binding and everything mm -hmm. else, like it's a good product. Yeah. And so presumably Amazon printed that on demand for me. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yep. They've got printing houses all over the world. So whichever one's closest to you will get the order. And then, and I've had some people ask for like bulk orders. Um, mm -hmm. And again, Amazon will just print them all and ship them off. So. Do you have a second book in you or are you going to wait for, for this to, for the glow of this to come off first? Yeah, I'm, I'm, my long-term plan would be to, 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 to put out more books eventually, but I want to continue to learn everything I'm doing is new to me. Starting mm -hmm. my own company was new. Learning how to build my own brand was new. Learning how to attract customers for myself was new. I'm, I'm an innovation consultant. Right. My background is I was an employee, a cog in the wheel at large corporations. So this is all new. Writing a book was new. Putting the, putting the, the course, it was new, but I'm trying to 
make sure I follow my own advice, take an innovative approach, take an agile approach, learn from my customers. Every time um, a company says they can't work with me for whatever reason, I try and figure out a way to make that possible for the next company so that they don't have that reason anymore. That's why the book's there. That's why the course is there. That's why the game's there. How do I make it more fun, more entertaining, more educational? How do I reach people in other countries? Because um, when I first started, it was, I'm in my hometown and I do workshops in my hometown. Sure. The and, world got uh, a lot smaller in a way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you're doing very valuable work and, and it's been a fascinating conversation. I won't end this like a textbook. I'm going to end this with a story. Um, do you remember the premise behind the movie Freaky Friday? Uh, was that the one where they change? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Roles? So the, yep. the yep. version I remember is I think it's the mother and the, and, and the daughter right. both are angry at one another. And they're like, your life is so easy. And they part ways and wish they could swap. And then some That's miracle right. happens and they do inhabit each other's lives. Yeah. So if you could Freaky Friday with any CEO of any company mm. on the planet, either because you think they have the coolest job or because you think that you could really bring some innovation, some vital innovation to that company, yeah. what company would that be? If I could go back in time. All right. Good. To when Starbucks was just starting out, mm -hmm. I would love to be in... Charles Schwab's, I think, is the CEO. Uh, I would love to have been his, in his shoes at the time when he decided, okay, we're no longer going to be known for, you know, um, coffee that we create and distribute. We're going retail. We're going experience. And we're going to disrupt the Dunkin' Donuts of the world or in Canada, the Tim Hortons of the world. <laughs> and we're going to design this high-end coffee experience um, and just just the amount of confidence you must have had and uh, just the, the vision to disrupt something that you didn't even think needed to be disrupted and just have that innovative. I, I would love to kind of, you know, change shoes with him when he was going through that process and what that must have been like. That's a terrific example. And uh, thank you so much for being on the show, Dennis. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me, Tim. My guest today was Dennis Geelan. A link to Dennis's book, The Zero In Formula, will be in the show notes. My name is Tim Hampton, and you can reach me at tim at unusuallywellinformed.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you will subscribe and join me for the next show with another unusually well-informed leader in business and technology. Thank you for listening to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. The opinions expressed by the host and guests on the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast are their own and do not reflect that of their employer or any other affiliation.